Tonight we're turning to Ezra chapter 9 in our Bibles, and I invite you to turn there with me or follow along in the screen behind me. We'll be reading Ezra chapter 9, each of the verses of this chapter, and then thinking together about how God will use this in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. So turn your attention with me to the Word of God. Ezra chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, hear the word. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within, this holy, within His holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves." Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it, is a land impure at the impurities of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from one end to the other with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there should be no, there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of God. May he bless it tonight as I proclaim it to you. 
The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about the people of God when they came back to the promised land from captivity in Persia. And the question that needs to be answered for us as we study this book is why did they go into captivity to begin with? Why did they go into captivity? What was the error of their ways which prompted God to treat his people in this way? If we look back into the books that precede the one we're studying here tonight, we find it's very simple. They had left their God, and because of that, God had caused them to leave the land. And the really encouraging thing that we have seen up to this point in the book of Ezra is that the people who returned seem to understand that. They seem to remember that they had left God, and so they had to leave the land. Now they have returned not only to the land, but they have returned to God. And in the middle of major opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, they do not compromise, they do not give in, they do not worry what their enemies can do to them. No, they trust in God. And isn't it in our hearts that we cheer for the people in Ezra's day and say, that's exactly what you should do. You should follow after God. You should listen to Him. His strength is greater than your enemies. How refreshing The book of Ezra up to this point has been, but here it ends, (laughs) because it turns out there are some sins that are particularly sticky, by which I mean they come back not just once or twice to the people who are living here, but these are generationally sticky sins, sins that seem especially expedient in the moment. And because of that, God not only lays out in this book of history the way the Israelites responded to him, he also records that response for us tonight. And I want to talk to you tonight about how God removes those sticky sins in our lives, even the ones that seem generational and expedient. And there are two things I want to explain to you from Ezra chapter 9, and the first is an obvious one, and it comes from the first section of our verses where it talks about the condition of God's people, the condition of God's people. We would be surprised prior to reading this chapter that this is where we would end up in this book. Remember, their enemies have brought all kinds of complaints to the king of Persia, But the king of Persia has listened not only to the letter they sent in return, but God has been at work. Remember that? God is at work through their prayer. And the king of Persia decides not only to allow them to rebuild the temple so they can worship God, he also funds in great measure the rebuilding of the temple. What a tremendous reversal. And then all of a sudden we come to chapter 9. And it's almost like we're reading about different people. If I can wink a little bit when I say this, it's almost the difference sometimes between us as children when we're at someone else's home and then we come back home. (laughs) It almost seems like we're different people. Or maybe if I can be a tad impolite, maybe that's also true for us as adults. One place we look one way, and when we're at home, we show a different side altogether. The first five verses of this chapter tell us about a practice that evidently has been going on some time, generational practice. Ezra is approached by leaders of the people of Israel because there is a marriage problem. 
It is not that the men of Israel have not found women to marry. They found many of them. It's the women that they're marrying that is the problem. They went out to marry women from the surrounding nations, from the Canaanites, from the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. If there would have been otherites, they would have married the women of those nations too. Because these Israelites were thinking to themselves what nations around us and what women from those nations would be expedient for us to marry. And listen, I don't think it's fair to assume that their wives were bad wives. I think we could assume that they were good in many ways. They may have cared for their children well. They may have loved their husbands well. They could have done all the things that the Israelite husbands wanted their wives to be except for one golden thing. You know what that was? These wives did not worship the God of truth. They did not worship the God who is revealed in the Word. This is, I would suggest to you, at this point of Ezra, an especially ripe sin for these Israelites. It is a, it's going very well kind of problem. At this point, they have come to the land And they have settled in the land, that's very clear. The nations that have stood in opposition to the Israelites, that has calmed down. The temple has been rebuilt. These nations, in their opposition to the Israelites, now seem less in opposition. They even see friendly. Friendly to the point that they are giving their children, their daughters, to the Israelites in marriage. What could be finer? Instead of opposition, there's cooperation. Who doesn't want cooperation socially? But there was in this, everything is going well, as I suggested, a problem. The danger lay in what this meant for the Israelites. Listen, this was not an ethnic problem, as though the Israelites were never allowed to marry those who were not Israelites. No, remember Ruth, for example, in the Old Testament. It's not an ethnic problem, it's a religious problem. The Israelites could marry those who are not Israelites from outside of Israel if those who they married did one thing. You know what that one thing was? They worshipped the God of Israel. Ruth said, your God shall be be my God. This is at the heart of what we read in verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of this land. It isn't that these lands are naturally bad. It is that the women that these men were intermarrying with were women who did not worship God. Are you tired of me saying that yet? In Exodus 34, 11 and 12, God warned, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, listen to the list, the Amorite and the Canite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Sound familiar? Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you were going, lest it become a snare to you. And you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlots with their gods and make your sons play the harlots with their gods. Notice the emphasis in Exodus chapter 34. 
Israelites have just come out of captivity. God is saying, prepare yourself for when you go into the promised land. Here is going to be an an especially expedient sin you're likely to fall into. You look at the culture around you and you say, it's not so bad. They may not worship exactly the same God we do, but these are nice people. And they make for good wives. Therefore, what's the problem? Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4. We read there, Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their sons, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your son from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and will destroy you suddenly. That is to say, God cares so much for his people that he will not have them led astray by any means, including this interreligious marriage. You can see why Ezra then in verses 3 through 5 responds in this way. He pulls out his hair and his beard. This is not hyperbole. He was so upset. Have you ever been so upset you literally pull your hair out? That's Ezra observing this intermarriage. It is that awful. And then he gathers around them others who are also astonished. And they also sit in silence fasting until the evening sacrifice because they are also dumbfounded by what has happened to the people of God. Why were they so astonished? It's very simple. Their astonishment arose from how quickly and easily sin moved into the hearts of God's people. So soon after God had convincingly shown his power in bringing them back to Israel, they repeat the sins of their fathers again. Can you believe it? Can you imagine how that sin of intermarriage could have been so sticky for them? It's frustrating in some ways, isn't it? If you read chapter 9 and you say, what are you doing, people of Israel? How could you do that? Well, you're certainly not alone. Just at the point that people seem headed in the right direction, they head off on their own again, away from God. Frustrating. Frustrating. Frustrating enough to pull your hair and your beard out and to sit alone in silence, frustrated until the evening sacrifice. It is the sins that seem expedient, often generationally expedient, that are often the most sticky. I'm reminded of a section from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. You might know the entire book is composed of a series of fictional letters between one devil, an uncle, and then his nephew. And the uncle, Screwtape, says to his nephew, as he's learning the family business, he says, if more overt forms of temptation do not lead them astray, do not give up hope, nephew. Some of our greatest successes come when they least expect it, when they are satisfied, when they are content, when they let down their guard. Then carefully lay before them something which hardly seems important enough to worry about. Let them take the little bait and then reel them in. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. We take the little bait, the little temptation, the temptation that almost seems harmless we fall for. Those little temptations come in the best of times. It almost seems like there's no difference between doing this and that. So if we act a little bit more like God says not to, what's the harm? You can imagine the Israelites saying exactly this when their sons married unbelieving women. You don't want them to be happy? You want to ruin their marriage day? 
You want to cause a big fuss about something when these young people are so obviously in love? Why are you making a big stink out of this? What's the difference? And moment by moment, marriage by marriage, little bit by little bit, the next generation of Israelite children were not being raised to love the God of the Bible. I want to ask you tonight, really ask you and not answer for you, at least at this point, the sins that seem sticky, even generationally sticky, that seem expedient for you. Maybe it's not this marriage of someone who's not a believer in Christ. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something that you have seen Christians fall for time and again, taking their identity not from the Scriptures as a follower of Jesus Christ, but making our identity all kinds of other things. How well respected we are, how much we own, what we want ourselves to be, whatever it is. And little by little, piece by piece, in the good times especially, these sins which seem so small and almost harmless in the moment are the expedient ones, especially if they are generationally demonstrated and we simply give in. And we relax and we say, this isn't really so bad. When times are easy, are sometimes the times to be most diligent. This passage teaches us about the stickiness of sin, especially the generational sins that seem expedient. And so I want to say one other thing to you as well, not only about the sin of these people, but also the confession of God's man, because here's where the answer to this question lies. What does God say to us about these sticky sins? What can be done? When the failure has already taken place, what then? I just want to alert you to the fact that what we have in chapter 9 is not all that happens in this story. There's more in chapters 10 and 11. 10 and 11 tell us what happened as a result of the confession that we read here in chapter 9. But we're here in chapter 9 tonight, so there I want you to hear that there are four things about Ezra's confession about these sticky sins that we need to hear as well. First, look at verse 6. Ezra says, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Here's the first thing to know in the face of these sticky sins. Ezra includes himself as the one who has rebelled against God. He admits guilt. Now you might say to yourself, Did Ezra marry a pagan wife or even approved of this practice? We have no reason to think he did. But what he recognized was that as a community of believers, we are responsible for each other. We are the church. And what happened to God's people also affected him. He could not simply stand aside as one who did not care and one who persisted in sin He could not stand by simply watching. I want you to see this humility in Ezra as he speaks in opposition to the people who were following after precisely the sin that led them into captivity. Before they went into captivity, the attitude of the people was not humility. 
It wasn't a sense of guilt and shame over what they were doing. No, we read in Jeremiah 6 verse 15, these words, pre-being taken into captivity. The prophet notes, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, he answers. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punishment them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. In contrast to that, the first thing we see in Ezra's prayer of confession is that he recognizes that every sin is first of all against God. It's not primarily what would happen to the Israelites because of their sin. It wasn't in the relationship that they had with each other. It was not in the relationship between these husbands and these wives. No, the first sin that needs to be confessed is a sin against God himself. We need, like Ezra, to tremble at the words of the God of Israel. Again, I've been meditating after this morning's service, a beautiful service, about those two songs that we sang at the beginning that talk about the holiness of God. God is holy, my friend. And Ezra recognizes that and therefore cries out in confession to him on behalf of God's people. The second thing we need to note about Ezra's confession is that it points out a persistent sin. Verse 7 says, Since the days of our fathers we have been guilty, our iniquities that we, our kings, our priests, these iniquities have delivered us into the hands of the, la- of the kings of the lands. These sins have meant the sword, captivity, and plunder, and humiliation as it is this day. Ezra doesn't dismiss these sins. He notes them for what they were. They were generational sins. Sins that stuck not just to one person, but to the people as a whole. Again, I would say to you, there are sins that are more attractive than other sins because of our historical situation. The Israelites had their business of marrying pagan wives. Perhaps our particular weakness is not that. It may be, but not necessarily. Maybe it's material wealth. Maybe it is, as I noted a bit ago, our desire to define ourselves. Whatever it is that we find particularly attractive, maybe again it is the way that we respond to circumstances in life. Some family lines have struggled with anger, with treating each other and even being angry to God when things don't happen the way that we ought These are the sort of sticky sins. And again, pause for a moment and think in your own mind of the sins that are particularly sticky, generational perhaps, the ones that seem expedient because of circumstances both in our families, our church, and our community. What are those sins? Those are the sins that we're willing to cheat a bit in terms of God's commands. Whether we're looking for peace or it is a failure to take God's command seriously, you name it, like the Israelites of Ezra's days, we are and can be experts of cutting corners in order to please ourselves. That's the second thing to note. It is a persistence in that is confessed. The third thing to note in these verses is that Ezra confesses that their sin deserves punishment. Again, in verses 13 through 15, Ezra says, all that has come upon us for our evil deeds is because of the guilt that we deserve. You have punished us as our iniquities deserve. Even he goes so far as to say, if you would have punished us more, it would have been just. Ezra in no way cuts off the fact that their sins are horrific to God. 
Sometimes when we repent, we're quick to blame other people or to downplay our own sin. Ezra has none of that. He says, God, if you wanted to, you could have punished us more because a rebellion is persistent. It is generational. It is an offense against you. Ezra recognizes sin for what it is. He knows it's rebellion. Well, there comes to each one of us personally, or it is the nature of a community of believers. We cannot simply look by any sin. No, a sin is an offense against the high and holy majesty of the great divine. And tonight, Ezra confesses that for those who were the people of Israel in his day. And tonight, I want you to see that as well. If and in your confession of sin, you think to yourself, but it's not really that big a deal, you do not, my brother or sister, stand with Ezra, who is cut to the very core. Which leads me to the fourth thing that we find in this confession that Ezra makes, and that is it resulted in action. Genuine repentance is not only naming the sin, the seriousness of the sin, but it also is the beginning to a changed life. If you scan ahead to chapters 10 and 11, and we'll be addressing those chapters or speaking from those chapters in Sundays that follow, I'll sort of spill the beans, lay the cards on the table now. Ezra's confession leads to a national time of repentance. The Israelites heard and responded to the point that these men put away their pagan wives. Now, please hear, that may not be the thing <laughs> that should happen in our time. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if a brother has a wife who's not a Christian and she desires to continue with him, then let him not divorce her. The same results of that confession may not be the same in our time, but the desire to remove that sin from us, whatever that sticky sin might be, that generational, persistent sin, that must also be treated in drastic form. We should hate our sin to the degree that we're willing to remove it from ourselves, even if it costs us very, very deeply. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Pluck it out. If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. He was speaking in hyperbole, certainly. I'm not commending that to you. But what I'm saying along with Jesus is that our concern for our sin must be that passionate, to that level of commitment. Do not simply say about your sin, it doesn't matter. Say along with Ezra, the man who speaks with great confession, this is serious it is an offense of God against God. I repent and I turn away. Which leads me really to the end of this passage. And if you're listening to this tonight, you might say to yourself, I hear what you're saying, and the sins that are persistent in my life are not quite so easy. In fact, there are sins that I can see that have been part of my family's life, maybe even this community's life, and they have been there for a long time. What is it that God would have me do? How is it that that can change? I want to say to you tonight the same thing that the Scriptures say to us, that on this side of the coming of Jesus Christ, 
The Bible is explicit that those sins, those sticky sins, in whatever form they come, God is not leaving you alone as you address them. I don't mean that just in the ominous sense, like God is not going to just forget about them. That's true. But the Scriptures tell us that the death of Jesus Christ, as I'm fond of saying in Calvin's terms, was not only a grace for justification, it was also a grace for sanctification. That is, in our ability to repent and follow after our God. These verses tonight from Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. The apostle says, For if we have been united with Him, that is, Jesus, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you hear that? Let me give you this glorious gospel truth tonight. There is no sin that is stronger than the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no sin that anyone is struggling with, whether it's your own sin or the sticky generational expedient sins. That the grace of Jesus Christ cannot address. Do you believe that? Do you know that? The sins that seem so natural to us, we hardly need to think about them. The way in which we think about our world in a way that is not consistent with Christ's kingdom and yet seems so easy for us to follow after. Paul says because of Jesus Christ we have died to that sin And therefore, that sin no longer has power over us. We are set free. My calling to you tonight from Ezra chapter 9 is to live in the reality of the freedom the Lord has given. And that's why our Savior, our Savior speaks in Ezra chapter 9. He issues to you the notes of gospel call. In just a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Do you know what the Lord's Supper represents? It is a sacrament in which we hear again, first of all, the commitment of our Savior to us. Yes, our Savior calls us to follow after Him. When you take the bread and you drink the wine, it is a fellowship in the death of Jesus Christ. But do you know in the covenant nature of the Bible... That covenant is not dependent on your faithfulness to Him. Or otherwise, every sin we had would be so sticky, it would be generational and persistent. But in the Lord's Supper, we see that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is poured out so that our sins can be put to death. They will be put to death. And the reality of Romans chapter 6 will be true in each one of our lives. We are not enslaved to sin. That is the gospel news for you tonight. Let's pray. Father, there are times where these sins seem very close to us, maybe even unknown. Maybe the prayer that you would have for us tonight is that we would become aware of those sticky sins that exist. Sometimes those those are the hardest for us to realize, bring into our lives those who can see us from the outside. Maybe it's others in our community of believers. Maybe it's from the greater Christian community, even different places in our world. They can speak to us and say, we see the sins that are sticky, that are generational, expedient. 
We pray that you would show us the same awareness of our sin that you spoke through Ezra, that we would never become comfortable, that maybe others of us are fully aware of those sins. Maybe it's our anger, our frustration, our lust. Maybe it's our desire for more and more covetousness, the kind of thing that's commended to us culturally. Greed is good, we hear. And your spirit will not leave us with that truth believed. Instead, that cultural truth, that thing that seems so right and seems so sticky to us, your spirit yearns within us that we would know the greater freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness you give us for our sins, and thank you for the promise that you have said you would not leave us alone, but your spirit would continue with us to teach us the things that Christ taught while on earth. Thank you for the power of his work in each one of us. We rejoice in this. In Jesus' name, amen.